All right. Uh, here we are. Mythgard Movie Club. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, so I, we're going to, without really much ado here, we're going to start it off with some announcements real quick first. And Kat, I think you were going to go ahead and start. Uh, yeah. Um, just wanted to make sure you guys know what's coming down the pike in the next couple months. Um, first up is that registration is open for the spring 2018 semester. So if you have not registered or don't know what the classes are, go um, to that link very kindly provided there and check that out. Um, there's some uh, repeats of favorite classes, but also a few new ones. Um, uh, the, the part two of the Germanic philology class, which it sounds like everybody who took part one is signing up for part two, which is a good sign. Um, and uh, a new class called Literature, Film, and Technoculture, um, which is kind of all about the relationship of technology to, you know, the arts and humanities and human culture and how we process those ideas through stories. And it sounds uh, pretty interesting. So definitely go check that out. Um, and then also coming up on December 14th is uh, the Signum faculty chat with John Garth, uh, author of Tolkien and the Great War, who, you know, which is a fantastic book that all of you should read, and you should all make sure to attend that event. Uh, and then also we've got uh, text moot coming up in January, um, which sounds like it's going to be really fun, and I'm flying out to Texas for that, which is... Really nice seeing as I live in upstate New York. So uh, we'll be happy to, to feel the warmth there. Um, lots of good stuff. I think Corey said recently there were something like 30 presenters going in like 10-minute uh, slots there. Um, so that, that'll be a really interesting day to see all of that get in there. And then uh, for those who don't know, we've uh, announced the dates for MythMoot 5, Fantastic Frontiers. Uh, again, it's going to be in Leesburg, Virginia um, at the National Conference Center. Uh, there is early bird pricing going on right now that ends January 7th. So get in there and, and get your registration. And uh, they, we just actually posted this week the uh, call for presentations. Um, so we're looking for those, and that'll be open until mid-March uh, with that. And then finally, for those who don't know, uh, we started last week with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in, uh, over in our, our, I guess, our sibling uh, program, right? Um, we're the younger siblings, so we're better. but. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy started last week, and uh, well, we've got some more news about that actually. So, for those who are enjoying that, let's see if I do this right. We've got some announcements for upcoming movies for the movie club. Um, yeah, yeah, so um, my turn. Um, so uh, coming up, we have um, scheduled on January 10th, uh, the second meeting of the Mythgard Movie Club will be on The Last Jedi. Um, so put that on your calendar. Um, we now have that date confirmed, so we will be getting out event pages to that um, as soon as we can. So you can uh, register and go to webinar and um, get that all set up and ready to go. So we're pretty excited about that. And then... Um, in conjunction with the Hitchhiker's Guide Academy series, we uh, realized that it's going to be the anniversary of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in March. So what better time to talk about a movie, especially because Corey doesn't seem to have a, a space scheduled for that in his Mythgard Academy 
session. I, I may have suggested that he leave it off, but you know. Or, or that. So one way or the other, we're definitely going to make sure that the movie gets discussed. Um, and uh, yeah, that has Martin Freeman in it from the Hobbit movies. So, um, you know, another little Mythgard connection there. But we don't have a date scheduled, but keep an eye out on social media for that. Oh, and so, sorry, I actually hit the next slide there real too quickly. But um, that brings into mind what our uh, other upcoming movies for the year. So Kat and I had sort of a brawl the other night trying to figure out uh, what what we wanted to do going forward with the movie club. And uh, it kind of worked out nicely. So we're looking at um, the way we wanted to set this up, um, as we kind of described in the campaign video when we were talking about it with Corey, was that we wanted to do um, some sort of uh, what we call structurally enforced diversity um, and and bringing in both new movies and some older movies and kind of mixing in both fantasy and sci-fi. And so um, it was really nice looking through kind of the upcoming movies and, and kind of the most anticipated films uh, that are coming out in 2018. Um, now, I would apologize for doing two Star Wars films, but I'm not really sorry about it, so I'm not going to apologize for that. So, for example, we're going to be doing Solo when it comes out in May. I blame Disney for scheduling them only like six months apart. Um, but we also have some really exciting stuff. Uh, A Wrinkle in Time uh, is coming out. When is that one? That's like March or no, uh, April? That's like mid-March, so like late March, early April. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Like we'll, we'll publish the schedule and everything. And uh, – and, and another one that's kind of exciting is, is Ready Player One um, mm. from a sci-fi perspective, uh, which I, you know, really enjoy. Um, and then, of course, we can't not do uh, the next Fantastic Beast uh, film, which um, I looked and looked. They don't have a movie poster out yet, but we've got the nice little graphic there. Um, so as far as the new movies that we're going to be looking at in the next year, um, we wanted to pick those. We, we wanted to pick a sort of a mix of, like, standalone films and then ad and adaptations. Um, as well as some of the franchise ones, obviously, that uh, we've talked about before. Um, but I'll let Kat describe then kind of what the older movies, uh, why we chose those and, and what we're going to do with them. Yeah, so um, the old movies we have, the posters might be a little small depending on how you organize your screen, but um, it's uh, a mix of things. Um, a couple of which were uh, suggestions that came in as a result of the fundraising campaign. Um, so any movies that we got suggested there um, automatically made the cut. And then um, we just looked at what other ideas we had to try to um, diversify things, as Curtis said, so that um, there's hopefully a, a pretty broad mix of eras, you know, things from different decades going back pretty far, um, sci-fi, fantasy, a little bit of horror in there too to just kind of try to spice things up a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, the choices are Predestination, which is um, a, a Heinlein adaptation that came out a couple of years ago, Edward Scissorhands, Tim Burton fantasy kind of fairy tale movie from the 90s, uh, Alien, horror sci-fi, you know, from 1979, um, Dawn of the Living Dead from uh, the late 60s, This Island Earth uh, from the mid-50s, and She um, from the uh, mid-30s, I believe. So we've got, we're going back pretty far, and some of these are things none of us have seen, so this should be interesting. Um, so what we're going to do is 
we are going to leave it open to everybody to vote as to which of the four of these movies are going to get discussed this year. So um, you'll see that there's a link to forums.signumuniversity.org. If you've not yet signed up for the forum, now is a perfect time to do that. Go create an account, and there's lots of other discussion going on there. Um, so you can go in there. We'll have a post up in the next day or two of a poll where you can pick your four choices. And then the four winners uh, will get spread out throughout the year in between these other big new releases. Um, and that'll be it for the year. Then we'll have our whole schedule figured out. So all the work will be done. So, uh, and you'll know exactly what's coming and when and how long you have to prepare. So. All right. Well, with that in mind, um, we'll, and we'll get that post up shortly after the end of this, uh, you, you know, this uh, movie club uh, event. I don't know what to call it. But uh, anyway, let's jump in then to um, discussing the actual movie that we're talking about. And so I'm just going to move to the next slide because it's got some great quotes, but we don't necessarily even have to start here. Um, kind of wanted to open it up. I know uh, a couple of you, I think, had not seen it, or at least I know, Emily, I think you hadn't seen this before. Had anyone else not seen it before? Everyone I had seen else? it once. A long time ago, and remembered bits and pieces. Um, but then, when I was watching it again, I, I, I remembered more. But it was almost like watching it for the first time, a little bit. Sure. So, I, so Emily, maybe we can put you on the spot and just see, like, what, what was your, what were your thoughts like in seeing it for the first time, and like, was it anything kind of like you were thinking about or expecting? Any, any sort of initial thoughts that you had on it? I was a blank slate. Um, going in, so I didn't really know what to expect other than that Kat had told me that it's considered fantasy, so it just wasn't a run-of-the-mill love story, but um, yeah, you know, uh, I'll be honest, and, and you know, I don't know if this is the right time to bring this up, but it kind of reminded me a little bit with a different outcome of La La Land in terms of the premise and the focus of the movie, obviously with a very different outcome. Um, and I, I liked La La Land. I, it was not a movie I would have gone to see on my own because it doesn't meet my criteria of needing to have um, wizards, Jedi, hobbits, or vampires in it, um, or time travelers. Um, there we go. And so I wouldn't have gone to see it, but a friend of mine You have to admit. Yeah, right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, when I was watching uh, this film, Eternal Sunshine, I was like, wow, this is kind of dealing with some of the same questions, um, you know, of, of what, what can we forgive? What, what can we, you know, what can we put aside of ourselves enough to live in peace? And, and what can we not, you know? Um, and what's realistic? in a relationship and to expect me. Yeah, so so that's my, you know, and of course I wouldn't have made that association when this came out, if I would have seen it when this came out, because La La Land, you know, uh, was not in existence. But but yeah, that's that's my first uh, honest thought about it. There was less dancing though, right, in Eternal Sunshine? Yeah, okay. Far less dancing. Okay. Not, not without dancing entirely. No, not without right. dancing. Far less. Yeah. And perhaps less structured choreography. Of the dancing. Probably. Probably. Right, more impromptu interpretive dance. Um, 
Yeah, I don't, has anybody else seen La La Land? Um, I don't. I, I have, so. I did see it. Yeah, I see that connection. That's really interesting. I like that. And especially it's focused on just the two characters. Of, like, there's so much in, you can tell there's so much in the world. Um, and there's the other characters that are sort of off to the side that you end up kind of caring about. But the focus is the rom- the romance and lack mm-hmm. thereof at the end. Um and that, I mean, you're right, like the ending was different, you're right, but but you kind of walked away with the same feeling of, of bittersweetness a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was the vibe. The vibe of the film reminded yeah. me of that. Well, and the, and the idea, the, I think you're right in that the core premise on a purely story level is sort of the same of the expo- exploration of a relationship going sour over time, you know, and... Right. The conclusions might be different, and the genre is different, and the way it's told, and everything around it. But at its most basic level, that's kind of the same story premise, basically. Right. And they both ask the question, like the huge question in a relationship of, what if? What if I had said that and done that? And what if this this one moment, two years ago, made all the difference in everything that happened afterwards? Because at the end of La La Land, you kind of see it play out in a certain way um, in that what ifs kind of question being asked. And then it's almost, you know, at the end of the film of Eternal Sunshine, we get that what if question when he's at the beach in the house, kind of telling himself to stay this time and not run away or not leave. Um, but, but that was at the beginning versus like the end of the relationship in La La Land. So hmm. really, it's a good connection. I like that. Do we actually have? Do we actually have two characters in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? I mean, we have we have Joel, and then we have oh, time according to Joel. Yeah. Like, do yeah. do we? I don't know that we get, on except for the the book ending. I don't know that we get Clementine, and she's sort of out of sorts. So, um, but we probably get Mary. So we probably have we probably have another real character with Mary, but but again, so so it, that makes me curious about whether or not we ever really. I mean, Clementine I, or um, Kate Winslet won the Academy Award for this, right? So so it'd be intriguing for her to win an Academy Award for a character that doesn't actually exist, even on the screen, except in the mind of the person as it's projecting, right? Because it's memory. We get ninety percent of the film is memory. And they're Joel's memories, and we know that they're problematic memories. Right. right? And not even memories, they're also, like, she kind of becomes her own character within his mind at the end. As as he's going further and deeper and deeper, she kind of has her own agency in a way. That's Um, right. But still, she's just in her mind, in his mind. That's right. So she, so we got another layer. It's like it's these layers deeper, right? So, she, you know, she she's she's his memory, and then she comes alive in his memory, and now she's her own character in his memory. And then, what's the relationship with that? Like they're playing the tape, and she's hearing her own story told through his his life, and and she's like, that's that's not me. Um, well, you know, and you actually see her set down the. The, the whiskey or the rum right at the end. Like, she's clearly not that interested in alcohol. She's mm-hmm. all messed up, and she hasn't turned to alcohol really in the midst of, of that. Although she does drink the gin at, at the beach, right? 
but that's a warmer, really, not a, you know, it's a different, we actually see a different kind of Clementine in the book ending than we actually do within Jules' memory. So I don't know if we know Clementine. So I think that's, a, that would probably, I didn't see the film, but La La Land, I, I think, has two characters, right, that, that play out in reality within the fiction of the film, so. Right, it's yeah, more balanced, I guess, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. from the, the point of view, yeah. Right. yeah. right, right. Whereas like with Joel, you have potentially an unreliable narrator here. Um, yeah. Who's, so, there's a layer of interpretation potentially onto what we see. There, and so structurally speaking though, I guess that depends. So when you say the book ending, so you, you know, there's like the, the prelude or the prologue or whatever you call it. Um, and then you get the like title and stuff. So I guess it depends how much do you think is that Joel's mind or is that sort of the diegetic part of the film? Like what's the, as, as far as structurally goes, because like throughout, cause, cause we see like Clementine with Patrick too. And and that is not in Joel's mind. It affects things because, like, we hear like you know when Patrick's on the phone and and Joel's like in his memory and remembering things and and going through all the process of forgetting. He he's sort of hearing the conversations and it's triggering things. But I do think we get some Clementine, not only outside of his mind there, but but even without Joel himself. Yeah, but notice that Clementine's different in Joel's memory with Patrick, who he can't see. Right? Sure. He's all she's all kissy, kind of behind the books at the store yep. with, with yep. Patrick. But in real life, she's just not good with him at all. Right? She's psychotic. Yeah. Not actually that in Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so that's actually quite a quite a quite a difference, actually. So, so I I don't. Yeah, you're right. But we we actually get two kind of we get we get these dual places and actually for the film to be believable as in memories are perspectival perspectival the narrator has to be flawed for the film to work right if the film if we got the sense that this is the perfect image of this other person right and it's absolutely true and there's no flaws well then well then what's you know that's not that's not memory, that's recorded you know vision, and we, we, but we do think that there's one one thing he got right, which was the speech about her. You know, uh, look, I'm I'm not some vision of a girl. I'm I, I there's a I think there's probably a mug with this quote on it, but I can't remember the, the quote. But they're in the bookstore, and the bookstore's fading. Right, the books are turning white as they're talking. Um, and she just says, look, I'm not, you know, I'm just this effed up girl who's trying to, to find her own way in the world. And he's like, I nailed that speech, didn't I? And she's like, yeah, yeah, you got that speech, right? And then she gives the speech later in the hallway. Um, so I, I think maybe we have that synchronicity at that one spot. So maybe, um, I think Kelly said it, maybe actually as we come to the end where the character takes on agency, we might actually see a recovery of Clementine as her right. hatred. And another color his interesting so you know in his mind or his memory she says you know uh i remember that speech really well and he nailed it and everything but we we know that that's objectively true because she repeats it later on right so this that's is true. a thought that she must have had how many times in her life you know that she has this line to pull out of, of i'm not a concept i'm not perfect um I'm just looking for my own peace of mind, that thing. But his follow-up being, you know, 
to acknowledge the, the objective truth of that, of this is the thing about herself she's trying to share. But then he follows it up with, you know, I, I still thought you were going to save my life even after that. So kind of an admission that, yeah, he has, he understands what she's saying, but that doesn't help, that doesn't always stop him from seeing her through his own perspective. Or it can't prevent him from assigning her the role in his life that he wants her to play. Um, which acknowledging it doesn't necessarily stop it from being true other than to say that there's an acknowledgement that he can't help but see her in that way. Yeah. And that's, like, how, that's how people work. Say that again, Sorry, Oh, I just, I was like, that's, that's, that's kind of, like, there were, like, little doses of reality in this, like, so many in this film, but that's, that's one of them. That's how people, you're bound to kind of view someone through a certain way how they affect your life or how you want them to affect your life rather than like who they see as themselves. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. Um, I, I actually, I was going to go back real quick because we got a comment um, from one of our viewers here. Um, one of our attendees, Mike Moore, uh, Going back to like the experience of watching the movie, um, for those of us who had seen it before, um, Mike says, uh, I watched it thinking I'd never seen it, but slowly realized it had somehow been erased from my memory. So it was terribly surreal. It took me almost an hour to be certain I had seen it and not just seen trailers or certain scenes from it. Um, I mean, I, I've seen it quite a few times. I have a copy of it. I've I've watched it periodically throughout the years, but um, like Kelly, you had said you had only seen it like once. Did, was that, I mean, you remembered having seen it, but um, what, was there a similar experience there or were there, were there pieces where like you were, you just had completely forgotten about or anything that kind of st stuck out at you yeah. at this point? Almost the opposite. I, I had thought, I don't remember. I mean, I think I maybe watched it in 2005, like after it came out DVD or something like that. Um, and I had had the opposite effect. I had thought that I had kind of seen it and walked out of the room and might have come back, or like maybe it's on TV and I like left. Or, but I think like when I rewatched it, I remembered kind of the whole thing, and I was like, oh, I've actually seen this whole movie. Like I sat down and, and watched it from start to finish because I remember kind of everything that that ended up playing out. Um, I'm not sure if there is anything that struck me more this time, like in some, in the sense of like just remembering what happened plot-wise. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had totally seen the whole thing, I think. Mm. Um, Being 10 years older, like, or more than yeah. 10 years older. I mean, that, I mean, you kind of, and I realized 10 years, like, well, in 2000, it was in 2004, I had grown up, so I was probably like 15 or something like that. So I had grown up kind of thinking of this like it's not a new idea to me to like erase someone from my memory because I had seen it in an internal sunshine of the spotless mind and so I kind of like it's weird to try to think that like this movie hadn't been around then and like this idea was very new because I've kind of grown up with it at this point if that makes sense um that I think I try to like connect myself back there but like I always think about like now I'm like I always think about like erasing certain parts because of that movie, like, from my own memory. 
Yeah, I mean, I that's, I'm sure, inevitable for anyone who's seen the movie. I mean, yeah. 10 years, well, or 12 years or whatever. How? No, wait, how, I can't do math. All right, I studied English. But, um, you know, between then and now, I mean, yeah, so many different things have happened. And, and, and I mean, everyone's just at a different spot in their life. I mean, think about it. There was no Signum or Mythgard then. Like, that's bizarre <laughs> to think about. Um, yeah, no, but, uh, yeah, no, I truly <laughs> You were all listening to uh, the Tolkien professor. Maybe, <laughs> were we? No, no, this wouldn't have even been a gleam in the Tolkien professor's eye. Yeah, that's years before. When did those podcasts start? started in, like, 09? Oh, oh, eight or oh, 09, I think, is when he started his podcast. Um, so and that was recordings of, like, the lectures he was doing in his classes at Washington College. It wasn't, yeah. like, yeah. anything official yet. Um, but, yeah. But it is um, funny from a, a meta point of view of memory, how if you saw it at an impressionable age, it does, you associate it with a time of life. Like before we started, you know, broadcasting, you know, Emily said, I've never seen this movie. I said, well, I saw this movie in my junior year of high school with my friends who were, we were very uh, super into movies and getting very like, you know, full of ourselves would kind of have, uh, you know, a sleepover and watch movies for like 12 hours, like on a regular basis. Um, so I saw this in the theater, probably like uh, 17 or 18 years old or something. Um, so, and many times since then to the point where I, there are certain rhythms of the dialogue and the editing that I just know because it's so, you know, ingrained in me. So, um and then it becomes part of your own memories. So the story, it, it's actually hard then to, to analyze it in a way because I have i know it so well, I've seen it so many times that it's, you know, it's sort of like trying to think about your own thoughts. How do you even talk about something that's so personal, you know? Well, that's actually, I think, one of the implicit questions of the film. How do you think about your own thoughts? But are the unasked questions. But I saw it actually in grad school in a movie club and like the month before we had done... Babette's Feast, and I think then I think then, which was an older film, and then we did this one, which was brand new, um, but we didn't go to the theater. I think someone pirated it or something. I don't know, and uh, or, or maybe it's just new release. And and I I decided this was a film, and so I actually taught it in 2011 and 2012 to undergrads, and what I I did it as I had the students they could watch it on their own, but I actually played the film at like. 10% faster speed behind me while I lectured and then I commented on things in the film as I lectured on Abelard and Heloise and Romeo and Juliet and so and then I just I would just at particular spots and say so here's where Clem says to Joel or Joel says to Clementine and and then I kind of moved on and it wasn't it was a little too postmodern I think for most students they were just like I can't I can't watch and I can't I can't listen. I can't do all those things at once and and so it's not like an experiment I would repeat a lot, but it was kind of it was so it was, that's how embedded it is to kind of my intellectual kind of approach to ideas is that this film kind of sits there right right there. So I think I made my students the content. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, so yeah, they were to watch it, and then I just played it, and then at different points, I just said, "So this is happening here," and 
this is how this connects in and <laughs> students students were like how do we what do we do in the exam like i don't i don't know what to do next <laughs> because yeah. yeah i was gonna say even even hearing you describe that like i'm so bad at multitasking i would i think i would just freeze up and like it would just be end up watching a movie for like an hour in class because i wouldn't yeah. know where to like even insert my own comments that's right yeah um, i also had like a dancer interpretive dancer over on the side and just kind of <laughs> and strobe lights strobe. <laughs> oh god strobe. so next... for me the mem memory is like for me i actually wrote that down as you know about the memory of watching the film was on there and and so for me it was it's one of those films that's a it's a what if question that when it's asked that it doesn't leave us even if we kind of forget the question i think could we erase memory what would it mean to erase memory um and here it is here and there's other kinds of these films and they're not always the greatest films ever but this one is a good film and it asks that kind of road bending kind of question which i like well um Mike, one of our attendees, also brought up um, Memento and Pulp Fiction as other examples mm -hmm. of movies like that, who that ask those kinds of what-if questions and have not only diverging possibilities of where can things go based on what choices are made, but tell them non-linearly um, as a way of, you know, demonstrating how convoluted these whole processes are. Yeah, it's very Derrida-like. It plays itself out as it's like it, 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 it play it, it, it performs the movie too in a way that you know performs the idea. It doesn't just keep posing the idea, right? It's not didactic. There's certain things that you don't appreciate, or I didn't until several viewings. Like the way that her hair color tells you the time period. Like yeah. it, it, it's told in you know reverse chronology, which the first time or two times you're watching, you're just simply trying to figure out when do these things take place. And it's not until later that you realize, oh, it's it's blue at the end, at, at, at the latest period, which is what it is in the beginning, which is the clue. It's the tip-off that yeah. this comes later, not before. And then you watch as the relationship gets older or newer, um, her hair kind of progresses through all these different colors as a way just to track the timeline. Mm. But I, I, the colors, like this time, because I remember that from... The, the first time, but not exactly having it figured out, like you said, kind of just being like, oh, it obviously changes, but like, you don't, ex you can't map it out exactly. But what I noticed this time was, and I don't know if there's anything to this, but her hair color, as the memories got further and further out, her hair color got, I think, brighter and brighter. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a very faded blue, um, when if, when if, in the beginning when she's like, I mean, come on, this is like, blue is like, Blue isn't sad, like which is silly, but true, I think, in this case. Um, but uh, but it's a very faded, washed out, weary type of blue, which I think is, of course, just saying a lot about where the relationship is. But in the very beginning, it's this vibrant, vibrant red of the relationship, and that's the last thing that he remembers. I just I kind of saw that connection as like memories getting clearer and clearer and brighter and brighter almost. Um, at least the happier ones were brighter and brighter and more vibrant. Um, but I didn't notice that this time, which is kind of interesting. Right. She says, I apply my personality in a paste, which is yeah. kind of literal. Like, so 
yes, it's a, it's always a color, but the, the vibrancy of the color might depend on how vibrant she's feeling at a given time. So is that well, true? Also, sorry, I was just going to say, also, like, if, if I remember correctly, like, not only is it faded, but it's, like, grown out, too. Like, you can see that yeah. it, it, it's been a while since she colored it in the beginning. So, yeah. like, if she's applying her personality in a pace, like, you get the sense of, like, the very stagnant nature of kind of the relationship, and she's just kind of letting it go. Like, there, there doesn't seem to be – she doesn't seem to be taking the same level of activeness and kind of, like, presenting herself as maybe she does at other points – uh, earlier in their relationship, at least based on how he remembers it. Yeah, or at least maybe like feeling less and less like herself. If herself is yeah. the color and she hasn't paid too much attention to herself, then I mean that could happen in relationships too. Or her personality is becoming streaky, or <laughs> or more rooted. Yeah. I don't know. Like, is it true? Is does Clementine apply her personality with a paste? I, I don't know. Like, actually, I don't know the answer to that. Like, he says, no, I'm sure that's not true. She's like, how do you know? You don't know me. And he's like, I don't know. I'm just a nice guy. Leave me alone, right? So this is the – and I, I, I actually didn't know. Like, I wonder if we're pressing too hard on it, too. Like, I, I didn't know, except, like, the uh, the draft of the screenplay that I just found on some pirated website online. Actually, the, the drafts are actually, like, they're not the hair colors, but – but blue revision, pink revision, yellow revision, green revision, and goldenrod. So they actually use these colors, and I will, so I, but I can't find the pattern in these things. I don't know what's, I don't know what the answer is, and whether or not like she she's more kind of blue, <laughs> you know, like near the end of the relationship and then the beginning of the new one, or not, right? What Kelly said. So I don't know, I don't know if it's true that she applies her personality with paste. Or maybe we all do. She at least she at least makes an effort to. Um, I've never been one to like always um, change my hair, but if if you are someone I think who who makes sure that you do, you do kind of do it with her. Well, I actually don't know because I'm not one of them, but it seems like she, like Clementine does it with purpose. So it seems like even if maybe Joel thinks, uh, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. She's saying, yes, I do. Here's why I do it. But she has a reason, and I think near the end of the relationship, the reason maybe left her? Well, and you get a sense, not not related to hair color, but um, you get like, who is, is it Joel, Joel's friend there who says, you know, she, she erased you from her memory on a lark, basically, right? Like, you get the sense that like, not that it's not purposeful, there's definitely purpose behind it, but that, like, her purpose changes maybe frequently and, you know, without much uh, external, you know, notice of what the logic is there to the change. And, and it's, maybe it is her personality, but it's what she's feeling right there and then and, and not necessarily what, you know, it doesn't have to be logical to anyone else as long as it's, like, kind of her how she feels and thinks it reflects upon her personality in that particular moment. I mean, maybe it doesn't need to be any more uh, insightful than just that. It's just, that's how she feels. She feels like having red hair. And so that's what she has. And 
Yeah, that could be right. The transience, like she says, you know, in a couple at the end, of a couple of years, I'm going to be bored with you or whatever, and you know, yeah, you change your hair color, you change your life, you change your partner. I think that's her. And she, okay, well, do they get to keep the lessons that they learned, even though they can't remember any of the things? I mean, so someone has to ask one of those questions, right? Right. Do like so. So the Mary character just can't help feeling in love with the doctor character again and again and again and like you could get this kind of like they could just keep doing it and she'll just keep falling in love with Howie Howard Um, yeah yeah, who uh, Wilkinson does a lovely job of I thought Um, that was a really kind of sweet character of his and um, and so she keeps tragically falling into this hole well well so is she so there's things she's keeping and there's things she's losing you're losing the memory but she's keeping something below the memory like are, like are we supposed to walk away and say okay well that's fate or is that biology or is you know or, or things just destined or is it that we actually learn there's things that we keep that are sort of beneath the level of memory yeah i want to know what they did with the tapes um <laughs> what the two main characters did with the tapes did they keep yeah. the tapes i would throw my are the tapes? I would Never throw them again. Yeah. It's a bit bad is, idea. There is a sense that I think Mary's story is the the kind of proverb that without the memory, she does keep making the same mistake. And maybe that's a very simple moral, but I think it's one that's easier to say than to actually do in your life. To learn from your mistakes and to realize the importance of even your failures and your flaws. And without that reminder, Mary goes back to the same, you know, back to the same well that is just as disappointing as the first time. And the change, the, the, I think if there's hope for Joel and Clementine, it's that Mary gives them their tapes, not that they should keep them. Like Emily's saying, maybe the, uh, the healthiest thing is to destroy the tapes but at least the knowledge of where we've been and the choices that we've made are necessary to not keep going back to the same places each and every time. Well, and that brings up an interesting thing because like, so, so one of the the ideas that struck me this time around was the idea that in order to go through this memory erasing, forgetting process, it require they require you to remember everything. So it's like in forgetting, you have to remember. And, you know, the first part of the process is talk about the person that you're trying to forget. Like, tell me everything that you remember about this person. And then it's collect all of the relics and, you know, whatever of the relationship that you have with this person and bring them in. And, and, uh, and then it's literally going like, memory by memory through your brain to erase it all. So like there's, there's multiple steps of like having to go through all this memory process of it. But then what's kind of interesting is then the doctor, like they keep these files, right. Of all the memories, they keep the tapes, they keep presumably the stuff somewhere. I don't know. And, you know, is there is there something to, is there something disingenuous about Howard and, and the process in general of just even keeping all of that stuff for all of you because he like 
the implication is that it's not just he's, that he's keeping the stuff for Mary, right? It's, it's that all of these patients who have come in, like they have all these memories still. Um, and then with her, it's maybe a little more egregious because not only is he keeping the memories and the tapes kind of in his desk drawer, but also is keeping her literally in the office as the receptionist. And like, if, if you're taking, if you're making like a clean break and trying to forget someone, like putting them in that situation to even like meet you again is ridiculous. Like everyone else gets these notices of don't even talk about this person that they exist. But then there's Mary sitting right in the front office of the practice right where Howard, who should know better, you know, is kind of keeping her there. And so, you know, what level of sort of impropriety or, or blame do we give him for that, um, you know, kind of thing? And and to what extent should he have gone through the process, maybe it's his own, you know? I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, he was the only one that, well, his wife, I guess, um, also knew, but... um. Yeah, I mean, he, no letters were had to be sent out, really, in that situation. It just, I think, like you said, it was, I mean, a lot of the blame falls on him for just not really doing much to change the situation. And he's almost inviting it to happen again. Mm-hmm. Especially true. given her, given his response to her, her come on that we he's, see. And the interesting part about that is because we hear the tape, right? She says, I liked you immediately. You didn't come on to me at all. And so, like, then does his standoffish behavior with her, is that appropriate? Again, knowing that that's exactly what kind of turned her on to him in the first place. Like, does even, like, having her there and but like still holding her kind of at arm's length is that I mean you know I mean I I guess a a benevolent look at that would be he just didn't kind of realize what he was doing but I don't know I don't I don't know that I fully (laughs) believe that like there's there's a sense in which maybe he's trying to have his cake and eat it too um and as the seeming inventor of this whole procedure, there, there's a responsibility, you know, of, of realizing what the situation he's creating. Yeah. Well, and maybe and he wanted to see it play out because he's the inventor. And mm-hmm. I had some questions about what role her being so stoned played in her kind of re-falling in love with Howard. I mean, she seemed like she had her, her you-know-what together in the office. And then all of a sudden she's baked and Howard comes over and she's all, Oh, Howard, let me get you a chair. Oh, Howard, I just love to watch you work. <laughs> it's like, we didn't see any of this before. So like, what, is this some sort of comment about the role of, of marijuana in, no. in it's about, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's about getting Superman's girlfriend in a t-shirt without a bra on a bouncing bed. I mean, like, like <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that's part of it. Um, but she is like, yeah, the stone thing. I don't know how, how helpful that there are jilted parts of her narrative. And, and I'm actually curious more than kind of the marijuana, like there's the, the divided self with her keeps kind of coming up the pot and the, the high and not high, the boyfriend, the not boyfriend, 
hating this other the creep character by Elijah Wood and yeah. I can't remember any character I can only remember the actors names and then but then like the books are like a test of fellowship in in the film right so like there's dozens and dozens and dozens of book shots all throughout the film and they intentionally have in the screenplay these these particular books and these references and the title and and it's all you know he goes to her apartment looks at her bookshelf they meet they talk in the bookstore he asks her out you know she works in a bookstore he breaks up with her while he's reading a book like or they she she walks out on him it's this this con and then hit one of his complaints is that she doesn't read books she reads magazines but of course she actually is reading a book all throughout the film right and so books are this kind of test of fellowship and then and she knows this mary knows this and so she goes to bartlett's quotation and instead of reading you know pope alexander alexander pope instead of reading you know nietzsche she just kind of plucks out these kind of sunshine moments from the past right and then and and uh it's on the screen here i think you know um I think Howard will be in Bartlett's one day, right? You know, <laughs> these quotation moments, right? Um, there's, I, th I think there's this kind of divided self with her that, that makes me ask the question of inauthenticity. Like, um, there's, there's something that she's not or is that everybody else isn't or is, right? There's really, she's set off from the entire film by this, the fact that she's not a reader, she wants to be a reader. Whereas Jewel and um, Clementine struggle so much, like their realness is the problem, right? It's, it's, you know, they get tired of each other. Um, and, and we don't know if the lessons they learn in the memory loss are actually going to then code forward so that they can, can be together or not. We don't know that. But so I don't know what that is about. I don't know what we're, or maybe that's, maybe I just read too much into it. And, and if the producers were watching now, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's good. We did that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, this doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, defend potential characterization issues. So, like, you know, maybe there are those problems that we could, you know, point out. But just from a purely narrative point of view, um, I kind of see the, the them getting stoned as the thing that gets the plot to go in certain directions. As it's the thing that distracts them so that they're not paying attention to when Joel's, you know, goes off the map and is going haywire, you know, and they're not really together enough. You know, you feel like if Stan was on top of things and was paying attention, maybe he could have figured out, but the fact that they need to call Howard there um, because he can't figure this out, figure out this problem on his own. Um, and I think it also loosens Mary up enough to get into her confessional mode of like, Here's the things that I wouldn't normally say, and she is normally together in the office, and under normal circumstances probably would, you know, bite her tongue and not confess her feelings, but she's in, you know, a, a more uh, loose-tongued uh, state at the moment. Um, now, whether that mean, makes sense for her character, we can debate that, but I think there's a narrative reason why they introduced the, the pot into that situation. Yeah, I thought the same thing, for sure. And I also thought that it was kind of interesting that she's in this moment where she's possibly in like a very hazy mind herself and watching Joel have his memories erased. In this moment, she actually pulls out these quotes that she has memorized. Um, and so I thought that was another kind of play to what memory 
can do for us because mm -hmm. those are something that she she holds quite dear for a long time and has been presumably if she came across those quotes and identified them with Howard they would be erased from her memory um, so it's something that she has come to time and time again um, throughout mm -hmm. her life these these quotations and has them word for word memorized well and, and it's interesting with the quotations too because she says she says that she ran across them while reading things and thought that he would enjoy them. But we know she has a Bartlett's. Like, we know where she got the quotes from. It wasn't, um, like Brenton, I think you said, you know, it wasn't from actually reading, like, Nietzsche or, you know, Pope Alexander. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't have anything more to say on that particular thing, but just kind of a, a, an interesting thing, like, given that, um, idea of like of the books and the criticism of well someone who doesn't read books but then wanting to be maybe appear as though you know she she does read the books that she thinks Howard will be impressed with her having read I think I said that right um right and maybe maybe somebody said this but she says I wanted you to think I was smart you know and that's that's as Breton was saying that's part of the the books being related to the the courtship rituals in a way in this movie that books are a way of connecting but also of impressing each other with how educated how well read you are yeah it's a, a signaling device yeah um what, what, lee, what are books other than that this? kind of going back to howard for a second lee pointed out um it's that howard keeping her around is you know potentially his ego stroking of it's it's nice to have a pretty young blonde woman around who he knows kind of might fancy him. Um, and so that's maybe, maybe that is more, you know, putting the responsibility on him rather than him being ignorant about what he's doing. Um, maybe subconsciously, but he's keeping her around to prop himself up. I think, I think if that's the case, that's a really neat irony because the, the confidence of the film that from the science, that the confidence of the scientist is that I can identify and eradicate memory, right? We can we can take a, a string of a person's life and reduce it to a few thousand points of data, and then we can remove those points of data, right? But if he's acting subconsciously or unconsciously, you know, and these these patterns kind of keep recurring, that they're out of his control, and ultimately lead to some pretty serious HR problems at the end, if not an actual, you know, plus loss of family. I mean, his business is trashed, and and, and now the secret's out for all of these couples. It's it's going to go. It's not going to be a good week for Howie in the office, right? So, like, I mean, that that these things are inescapable for him is really kind of intriguing. Um, when if we think about the structure of memory, like you would have to erase the, the, not just the memory, but remember there's also memories of memories, right? That are in, in the film, right? And, and they're going after those too. And so you have to get memories of memories. And then there's some sort of regress where it must be soft enough. And I think the film suggests that somewhere in that regress, the, the memory kind of sticks, right? And so the arrogance of the scientific approach is actually really undercut, I think, throughout the film, as much as the philosophical question remains open. Yeah, and that's, I mean, um, I don't, I think maybe, Kat, it was in some of the notes that you had put together, um, just in preparing for the discussion, around, like, just even the technology, like, 
it, it's interesting. Like here we have a movie. This isn't like one of those movies where it's like, you know, you've got this new technology that's like funded by like, you know, Stark Industries with billions of dollars in backing and, you know, nice clean laboratory and artificial intelligence and all. It's like it's down and dirty. And actually, um, Mike brings up, um, you know, Howard is barely bringing, uh, keeping his business together. And you know, these are like these employees are the best that he can find. They're not just, you know, they're not like top of the line, you know, recruited from like Johns Hopkins University or something. No. Like this is, and they have know, like a. They have a coupon, right? That came out at Christmas. Monday, yeah. Right, and there was like, I'm sorry, that special that that ended in the new year. I'm sorry, that special, like, what that yeah. came like a super saver insert in your local newspaper or something, right? Like, probably like a free Metro News thing, right, out in the street. So yeah, so yeah, and it's just some like it's on the corner of like, you know, a building of like row houses and stuff. Like it's just kind of like a converted you know, home or something. It's, it's, it's just barely as like, and, and, and it looks like a vet clinic. Like it's, right. it, does. It, it just, it just, and I think it's interesting that he's not arrogant. Like I, I, that, that's what, I mean, Kaufman's genius at the juxtaposition, right? So you have this, oh no, we can erase all these memories. It's not a big deal. This won't be a problem. We'll just mail people a card that's printed on dot matrix, you know, printer. And and it'll be fine. Nobody will worry about it, right? And it's done. And I'm like, you know, they like what they they need. They need to make friends who know how to logically think. For academics, <laughs> like they just need some logical thinkers to help them think through their program before they open up another shop. I think so. Right, and Mary's like printing out labels as she's answering the phone and dealing with the customers. And you know, yeah, you get what a, what a you know probably like a five-man operation the whole thing is um which two things with that i think one thing i want to we can you know anybody pick this up where you want to go with it i think that's all this kind of low-tech stuff is reflected in the filmmaking itself that i think today or even then but in the hands of a different filmmaker this could easily have been like jim carrey in cgi world um but the fact that it's all done practically like, there's a little bit of computer enhancement, but very little. Most of it's done with, like, trick photography. There's doubles. There's trick sets that open up into ex- extra rooms. They're um, using pens on film to erase right. these white books, right? Like, you whoop, you can actually see. We put it on, like, 10, 10% speed, and you can actually... You can actually see the thing, like, move across the screen, right? Right, it's right. So it's all this kind of lo-fi, nothing you can't do without, you know, an editing machine and, you know, your own, you know, the, the technology you can use, with, you know, with your own two hands, basically. Um, or what you can manipulate on set. Like, when Jim Carrey's a little kid, it's, you know, um, forced perspective. It's the same stuff that they make hobbits with, where you literally have one person farther away from the camera and you have a big table that makes it look like they're small, but they're not really. Um, you don't even need a blue screen when you just know where to put the camera, basically. Um, so that's one thing, is kind of the, the, the way the filmmaking reflects that. But then also, um, Johnny in the chat um, wanted to get people's thoughts on um, the fact that this movie is set kind of just prior to the real social media boom and how much would that have changed the story that like 
maybe there's a couple cell phones, you know, very basic ones, but basically this is a, a world and a story that lacks the kind of technology that now is just ubiquitous for us. Um, how might that have changed the way the story went? Is this story kind of dependent on that? Because, you know, as he kind of goes on in this question now, if you're dealing with memory, well, so much of our lives are recorded. And so you don't have this same debate about subjective memory when you can pull out your cell phone and take the Facebook video that you did last week. Um, and so that very much affects the story and the way that it's told. Yeah. Yeah, imagine this film by producers of Inception or Doctor Strange. Right. It would be very different. Yeah. Or 2012. Sorry. No. That was awful. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. <laughs> I want to imagine. No, and I think it makes it kind of special. I don't think a lot of other you know, directors, you know, Michelle Gondry kind of is known for this kind of thing, um, using camera techniques that are unusual, and I think that makes it look not quite like anything else. Um, you know, really or very few people would have made it the way that he did. Yeah, it kind of, it really does look like, like you talked, you mentioned the Inception, and that is like, also dealing with the mind and dreaming and stuff like that. Um, but those are sort of like, it's a different type of dream, like, because what we see in Internal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is kind of memories feeling real and emotionally feeling real because of the the cameras being, using, like, just traditional techniques. Um, they feel more like dreams feel, um, rather than, like, this kind of new, exciting thing that dreams do, like you see in an Inception or something like that. Um, did he, um, he also did some, oh, sorry. No, no, no finish what you're saying. Yeah, Michelle uh, Gondry did Science of Sleep, right? And I am trying to remember, I did see that one in theaters and I really liked it. Did it also use a little bit more CGI by that time? Because I think that was 2007 or so. That's my memory of it, but I haven't seen it then either. So I, I would have to go back and revisit to see, did he get more into the, because, I mean, this is kind of before that became quite as easy as it is now, too. So maybe it's just a virtue of when it was made. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's intentional. I mean, like, maybe it's that performance piece that we talked about. Did the Velveteen Rabbit book, quote, get into the film? That's what I know. So remember they're under the covers and he says, oh, no, I want to keep this one mem memory, right? And so they're, she starts crying. She's like, I can't believe I'm crying already. Well, there's a piece that's cut out of the film from the script, and it's actually a reference to the Velveteen Rabbit. Do you know that, that story? It's about actually <clears throat> this little rabbit that wants to be real, and it, it's it, the whole question, or this, this teddy bear that wants to be real, and there's a whole question of reality. And, and so in the end it says, well, reality takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen to to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are capital R real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. And I, I, I wonder, I mean, I think it's a loss that, I mean, it's too long for a film, I understand, but it's, they could have read it, I think, and, and it would have fit the film. And I wonder how much of that is that reality question that I haven't quite worked out with the film 
is about that for certainly for Clementine, that idea of beauty, you know, or the idea of the, the who she is, the reality of who she is, that really works relationally, which is that they they fall in love with the people because of the who they are, but they're actually largely who they are at the end of the two year relationship still. Like they're they're actually don't love the people who they are because of who they are, but if they actually love fell in love with the people who they are, if they change, they actually lose the people they fell in love with. And well, I, hope, I don't know if that made any sense, but like um, that question of reality, to be real to somebody, to be beautiful to somebody is actually to be loved out of beauty of one kind and into beauty of another, I think. So I think that's interesting. And so to me, the film, the ugliness of the film, the, the contrast of light and bright, the softness of edges that kind of kind of fold around the side, I think that's kind of really kind of a cool feature of the film. Besides the lo-fi kind of, you know, chic stuff, you know. I mean, it's if somebody's all their memories about a lover can fit on a, a 90 minute two sided cassette tape. You know, you know, clearly that's just that's a visual thing. So, yeah, that's interesting, like thinking about what's real and what's not real. And and that that quote from um, uh, Velveteen Rabbit. Um, of being real when I mean you're understood and seen, um, not in the beauty, but just who you are. And uh, it works on so many different levels, but one of the things I thought of was um, maybe that's why we have the Patrick character, the Elijah Wood character with her, in a sense, because he's, he's fabricating the whole thing, he's manipulating the whole thing, it's not real, and he wants it to be real so badly, like to him it's very real. He, he has a girlfriend, you know, he has a girlfriend, he has a girlfriend. Like, in his head, I think it's it's much more real than it is actually in the reality. Um, but what we see between Joel and Clementine is that sort of rawness, that, that realness. And you can imagine him saying that quote to her um, and meaning it. But, of course, if Patrick said it, it would have no meaning. Um, there's not that sort of under, under, understanding her um, or even really trying to. Um, he's just trying to get her, um, and so you've got that kind of parallel or, or contrast, I guess, um, in in talking about what's real and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. So we did. I mean, we kind of touched on on it before, but the whole stereotypes of the the manic pixie dream girl and and the nice guy uh, syndrome. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, so I mean, I've seen. In, in the very the very little bit of research I did, I've seen um, multiple characters from this show held up as both examples of the stereotype and as subversions of it. So I guess I would just throw it out there, you know, based on um, just these descriptions that I found on I, I think uh, Wikipedia and then and then a Wikia site um, and then a couple of quotes that I picked out. But you know, happy to open it up to like broader discussion of like. You know, what do we think? What what characters do fit this stereotype? What don't? Um, do they do the same characters at different times, or or even um, as Brenton pointed out, like you know, do does the Clementine in Joel's mind fit one way, and and the real life Clementine fit another, or or you know, just what are your what are your thoughts about that? Um, opening it up to whoever wants to speak first. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, kind of 
going back to where we were before, I, I feel like this subversion, I mean, I, I do think that Clementine ticks a lot of the boxes of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but the subversion of it is her expressing her frustration with that, of too many guys think I'm a concept and I'm going to complete them, but my story isn't there as support for you, the main character's story. I have my own journey. Um, now, as I said, Joel might understand that intellectually. Does he understand that at a deeper level is, um, is less clear um, or completely contradicted, but at least it acknowledges her kind of experience with that stereotype and the way that she's kind of flagging him early on I've seen this happen before, and I'm letting you know this is how I feel about this. Um, so I do think it's like whatever way that it conforms, it also kind of lampshades it, to use another trope. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know if um, if Joel considers himself like the nice guy, if we were going to talk about his stereotype. or um, But it's so funny because in the very beginning of the film, when we see them on the train, she automatically does, right? So she's kind of, it, interesting, interestingly enough, she's the one with all the concepts in mind, I think. Like, I'm telling you I'm not a concept, but I'm going to apply one to you right away when I meet you. She, it's kind of like her own, it's, like, it's kind of all in her, her head more than any of the other characters we see. Um, she's the one kind of obsessed with these concepts and, and placing people into things or unplacing them. Yeah, I mean, with the, it's, it's a bit pop psychology, but I mean, she, she she's distressed in herself, right? And if, if we're to believe the narrative that's presented for us, she's the one that's divided in herself, you know? Well, how, do you, how do you know? I'm actually a vindictive bitch, right? And, and well, no, I'm actually, I'm not. I, I like that you're nice. And, like, she's the one that's, that's caught in, in these worlds. She's the one, she's the one actually who reads the Velveteen Rabbit quote in, in the script, and then she cries. Um, and then they make love in, under the sheets. And, and, and that's, for, for her, kind of this, this moment that comes together in the script, this kind of um, moment that brings it. That's why Joel doesn't want to lose it, is because he knows that he's gotten her, right? But, but, are we ever just kind of one thing? Like, are, are we like are we ever concentrated holes? Isn't it un, unrealistic to kind of imagine somebody to be? Oh well, that that's the stable centrifugal reality person, my friend, my lover, my child, my parent, right? And that there's no kind of wings on the outside that clip us as they move uh, in orbit. I don't know, and and so it seems to me that I just so I don't know if her self tension is actually realistic or helpful but but it's certainly something that she that she experiences but we don't discover till the very end that he does too right like his his reactions to her are all fear-based um and they're actually they're actually about a sense of the loss of the self for him too so he hides it behind books and serious face and a and a three-day beard but it's it's actually it's actually for him a, a, a reality. Why? Why didn't you come upstairs after we broke into a house together? Well, I think there's a few good reasons why, but the, the reason that he gives isn't a good one, which is I was afraid, right? And I, I think we have the, those two knowledge points that happen in, in the dreamland. I just, I just don't know if they get to remember them 
in the years ahead. One other thing that strikes me um, is I think we're prompted to contrast Clementine with Naomi, who we never see or meet. We only get through references from Joel. Um, and I threw a quote in here um, from right in the beginning in that little prologue part of him thinking or, or like the, the, the overdub of him saying, maybe I should get back together with Naomi. She was nice. Nice is good. She loved me. Um, yeah. The subtext okay. for me being that it, there, he didn't love her back, but also the description of, of nice, which is like that's that's him him using the word nice a lot, right? And and the description, of course, in in the whole nice guy discussion of of her sort of putting that on him, uh, or, or Clementine describing him that way as well, um, and just kind of thinking like. Like, who is this foil that we never actually get to see? Like, what, you know, what is there? And is there a certain, does that sort of reveal a certain uh, transience in Joel's character that is actually, you know, maybe more parallel to some, you, you know, to some of the more overt transients, like the hair color and, you know, changes in attitude that we see in Clementine. But does his desire for something different and exciting and a manic pixie dream girl, you know, show that same kind of thing that, that we kind of see overtly in her, but then, you know, gets turned around to say, you know, she explicitly says, I'm not that I'm, I'm this other thing with my own intentions. Um, and, and what is sort of his desire there and, and the thoughts of, yeah, just again, that, that he's, maybe not as different in some ways as he's portrayed to be. Um, and, and then the illusion of that, of, of, you know, is the fear, you know, the unwillingness to embrace that sort of transience in the same way that Clementine does. Right. And he goes on about how non-impulsive he is. And yet he's with somebody else and is, you know, exploring this house with Clementine. And so, right, like what kind of more impulsive or, you know, more passionate, de you know, desire does that kind of indicate in him? Um, and even she's kind of like, I'm not getting whatever you've got going on. It's not a marriage, whatever it is. It's like she knows there's a story there. There's more under the surface, but she's not going to kind of press the point. Um, and in terms of, Illusions too. Okay, if there's a foil that we never meet, is that like Juliet and Rosaline? You know, it's it's the 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 lover that's off stage that he kind of starts the story thinking about and wondering about, but we never actually see on screen. Um, we ever or on stage, we just see the 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 central tragic romance. Yeah, I, I mean, and his claim about not being impulsive is demonstrably untrue throughout the movie. I mean, literally the first thing we see from him is skipping work to go out to Montauk for, he doesn't know why. Um, and, and yeah, no, I mean, there's other examples, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm, I don't, she's not shallow. Like, like she's not vacant. Like the, the, the manic pixie dream girl is, is, like, does she have substance? Like, when Zoe Deschanel does it or something, I want to believe she's substantial. I don't know if I can or not in, you know, 500 days of 500 hours of film or whatever that awful thing was. But it's, like, 
I want to look. So look, Hitchhiker's Guide, like you know, Zoe Deschanel. So sure, but but Clementine isn't is she's not vapid, right? And um, so whatever else she is, I think there is that content. You know, Joel. Oh, well, I'm not this kind of person, so therefore, you know, I'm not going to do this. But he's living in tension with it all the time, and she's like, well, I'm not this, or I am this, and she's living in tension all the time. I think there's this. The divided self just kind of keeps playing it, playing itself out. So I don't know. He's not terribly nice. He says about the cruelest thing possible uh, on the eve of their when she walks out, and that's good. She walks out. I think um, she probably shouldn't drive drunk and wreck his car and kill children or whatever she did. But you know, he says about the worst thing possible. Um, and, and for that, and questions her ability to be a mother. Yeah, yeah, that was helpful. You not, know, um, not smart. On a good day, too. It is true. It's not smart. Yeah. yeah. She is terrifying. <laughs> She's a little terrifying when you say the wrong thing, you know, in, in his mind, in this character. But, like, so who's, so you mentioned Rosaline. I'm curious. So when he says, you know, remember he's in the, the Montauk Cafe and she's he's trying to see the book that she's reading and he, he, she puts Bombay Jim into her coffee and then kind of gives her him a little wink and and then he goes back to his drawing by himself right and he says why do I always fall in love with every woman right you know and it's sort of so so where was that line and it took me a long time to find it but it's actually it's near the end of the Elephant Man the original book when um, when he's in the hospital and uh, he becomes this superstar in a London elite and and they come in so these women come in uh, into his life as this show like this moment and they visit him for half an hour and they leave and he's you know he, you know he falls in love with each and every one of these women it's actually the line in the film and and is and and I'm curious to it to, to what extent in the way that that book asks that question of the interior and the exterior, the, the, the human and the savage, I think is the language that's used, the human and the monster, right? In what sense that's playing playing out in this particular film as well. I mean, not to mention Heloise and Abelard, which is in the title, but, you know, I'm curious. That makes me curious. And has anybody read the, I probably shouldn't do multiple questions, but has anybody read The Red Right Hand by John Towsley Rogers? Which is referenced throughout the movie? Yeah. No. I didn't either, and I just <laughs> I, I could. But um, there was a I have a, a quotation here from it. Um, the, the one of the reviewers said it's a book about memory uh, that brings you to the very core of madness. Sounds appropriate. Yeah, yeah. And it comes in the context in the script of, I don't believe the soulmate crap anymore, as Clem says. Patrick says so many great things. All the Patrick lines are taken out in their relationship that were in the script. So that they're actually, Patrick's actually scrubbed, except for that one visual moment between them two. Patrick says so many great things. We like the same writers. This writer, Joel Townsley Rogers, he turned me on to. And then Joel says, yeah, he's one of my favorites. Um, it's one of the oddest locked room mysteries I've ever encountered. But, so I, I want to read this. Maybe I know everything then, but it's like it, it's it's the only book that's referenced in in the in the thing, except for Velveteen and Rabbit, and they're both dropped. So clearly, Kaufman loved this, whether or not it's actually important. Right. I don't. I don't know. Um, well, and on that theme, um, just for future viewing, um, either 
maybe in this movie club or just people go check it out. Um, uh, Being John Malkovich, which is not Charlie Kaufman's first movie, but like one of the first one that kind of made a name for him. Um, yeah. The the you know the main character is a you know a puppeteer. He you know makes and performs marionettes, and um, they his you know puppets perform uh, a dialogue of Abelard and Heloise in that as well. So just oh. as a kind of little a little theme to go do some you know study and research on. Clearly, from the writer point of view, there's something about Abelard and Eloise that is is intriguing that Kaufman keeps coming back to. Well, it's the, it's like the Western love story. Right? Sorry, go ahead, Kelly. Yeah. Oh, well, it's no, the I Western was kind of playing piece. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's the Romeo and Juliet of the, the, the 12th and 13th century or whatever, right? So it's it's and and what's really neat if you think about the the film, and you think about the poem by Pope. So I mean, and, and gorgeous that you have the quote there, Curtis. The gorgeous um, kind of lines: "How happy is the blameless vestal's lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot." So you got this cloistered nun who forgets the world, and then is forgotten by the world. Well. The, the whole Aloise, it's it's all written from Eloise's point of view, unlike in the movie we have all Joel's point of view, in the in the poem it's all Eloise's point of view. And and she's like, well, you, yeah, you can do that. It's, you know, obedient slumber, she sleeps well, She, she her desires are composed, everything's, it, you know, tears are delights, sighs waft to heaven, grace shines around with serenest beams, whispering angels prompt her golden dreams. You know, it's just this, this, yeah, that's that's what it is. If you want to cloister yourself up from the world, that's the life that you can live. But then the next the next stanza says, "Far other dreams my erring soul employ, far other raptures of unholy joy, when at the close of each sad sorrowing day, fancy restores what vengeance snatched away." Abelard was um, castrated um, by bad guys. Uh, then conscience sleeps, and I know that's a really poetic version, by the way. Uh, conscience sleeps, and leaving nature free, all my loose soul unbounded springs to thee. And it's not a prayer, it's actually to Abelard, her lover. And so this contrast of these two, yeah, you can live cloistered and have this amazing kind of clean life, but actually out here in the world, this is this is us. And, and I don't think Pope quite gets what, Heloise is arguing um, in, in the that that kind of beginning of the late medieval period, but she's saying somehow romantic love fits with the love of God, and I, I can't I can't I can't explain it, but this is why it's holy. That's why I want to be your sister rather than your wife, because at least I get to love you. I would rather be your mistress because at least I'm not forced to to love you, right? And she's she's fighting for this space. And and Pope doesn't quite get it, um, but but he's close. And and in this point, he's really, you know, she wants to live in this kind of it, life is dirty. If you want a relationship with somebody who's as interesting as Clementine, from Joel's perspective, well, guess what? She's going to be interesting, you know, and problematic and difficult. Um, that's why you liked her. And I think I I love that dirtiness of of the the second parallel uh, verse there. So. Um, yeah, there's also another thing from this poem, but we'll come back to it maybe. And that's the the, the conclusion I en I enjoy from their final conversation of 
I'm not perfect and I'm these are my flaws that I the mistakes that I invariably repeat you know I'm gonna get bored and he says well I'm gonna get critical and then they kind of go okay like you can work at your flaws you can acknowledge them but you you know none of us are going to ever achieve perfection in this life and if the relationship is going to last it requires that they acknowledge those things and you know, again, if there's hope, it's that there's a recognition there of we're going to have this fight again, um, but we don't have to have it end in the same place as it ended before. And maybe knowledge is forbearance against what the challenges that are going to come. So do they make it? Yeah, I was just going to say, so do we skip to our last slide here? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we already talked a little about in in forgetting you have to remember, but but does the so I think the first question is, you know, does forgetting actually give you a chance to start over? I mean, it seems to me so. You know, how how happy is the blameless vessel's lot? Like, you know, there's an idea in that section of the poem of, you know, that that forgetting, you know, there, there's sort of an Bliss's ignorance idea there, right? Uh, or ignorance is bliss. Sorry, maybe the other way around too. But um, ignorance is bliss. And but is that actually true? Like it seems like all the people who forget and who go through this process actually are quite not happy and not very blissful. And there's a lot of ten now. Maybe you know, is that because they're forgetting is imperfect, and so there's like little you know memories and and snippets and bits like maybe it's just impossible to completely forget and so that's part of the itch that's left behind but you know even if there is like a complete forgetting there like with Mary and Howard like there's still an attraction there that then sparks something in her to want to pursue it um you know so maybe there isn't a happiness there because there's still there's still that desire and and I can't think of the word I'm trying to look for, but but something sort of, of pressing her to, you know, want something more uh, in that situation. Um, and I don't know, maybe that goes back to even the discussion around, like, the technology. Like, is the technology even good enough at this point? Maybe there's just a flaw in, in the idea itself um, and then how memory is stored in, in the human mind. And even if it were the best technology you can get, is there something in our human biology or our heart or soul or whatever um, that would still call to that other person because we have that connection? Um, like, is there something deep within the human, I guess, soul or spirit or whatever you want to say um, that, that beats technology every damn time? And I think or, that's... That's hinted at because of the fact that they both go to Montauk. Like that, okay, so if Clementine in his memories isn't really Clementine herself, it's his memory or his projection or his imagination or himself talking to himself. Right. You know, one of them somewhere in there makes a new memory, right? They go into the house and it's crumbling and he's talking about his failure to stay. And she or him says, what would happen if you stayed this time? which he does, and then this idea comes of meet me in Montauk, 
Um, cut to the next morning, they both seemingly skip work and hop a train out to Montauk. Yep. The implication being she had the same idea, maybe, I don't know, maybe through the same process of erasing her own memories, came to the same conclusion. Um, she's three or four days behind him. Like that That's what makes the synchronicity of it interesting. That's a good point. Right? Yeah. She's erased herself on Friday and he's on Wednesday or something. Well, has she been going to Montauk for like three or four days in a row? Well, she should have remembered mittens. I mean, frankly. <laughs> of all the, like, but she says, you know, what if you stayed this time? Let's make up a memory, right? And and that's, I mean, that's what gives me hope in the film. Like, like, and I know you guys have a conspiracy theory that you're about to expose for us all, but the, um, you know, <laughs> which is going to wreck everything, maybe. That's what gives me hope in the film is that if they can come to understand that actually it's them that they love, not kind of the idea of them, then that's, that, that's interesting. But, but to be fair, the Pope film ends with Eloise pronouncing her own death, quiet on her own deathbed, surrounded by nuns and not by the, her loved one, while her child that was taken away from her um, grows up in a whole other place, and Abelard, without testicles, continues to write theology far away. So that's her thing, and she says, you know, and sure, if some, uh, if fate, some future bard shall join in sad similitude of griefs to mine, um, condemned whole years in absence to deplore an image of charms he must behold no more, such if there be who love so long so well, let him our sad, our tender story tell. Uh, the well-sung woes will soothe my pensive ghost, and he best can paint him uh, who, who shall feel the most. He can be best paint them who shall feel the most. That's weird. And, uh, and so she's saying, right, well, future bard, you know, f future writer about the, the story, if you're really going to take up my story, then you actually have to tell it like this um, with, with uh, you know, with separation at the end so that my ghost can rest, right? So <laughs> you know, that's my... That's my pessimist side. Is that, is that uh, if what's his name is really taking up, um, Coffin's really taking up Eloise and Abelard here, then he may be true in a way that I'm uncomfortable. So I don't know the the alternative ending. So those are my two. I want one, and I, I'm afraid the other is true. So. Well, and it could be consistent with a, another uh, movie of his adaptation. If anybody's seen mm -hmm. that, the way that yeah. happy and sad endings. Uh, I won't spoil the ending of adaptation for anybody that hasn't seen it, but maybe go watch that and think about the value of a happy ending <laughs> with that movie. Yeah, and and the importance of an adaptation. I mean, I think that's, you know, you know, that's that's important there too, right? And the liberty to change things in an adaptation. But I I can stubbornly disbelieve an artist when he or she creates a film anyway, and or, or a book, right? The Giver. Um, you know, I don't believe the ending that the author, what's her name, believes, right? I, she went on to write other books, you know, and presumes an ending. I don't believe her. It's Lois Lowry. I don't, I, I think she's wrong about her own book, quite frankly. So, so I'm okay. Whatever you're going to say, I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> did she say something? Did she give a definite ending to the giver? Well, she I goes on. Yeah, well, she goes on to write more books about that world. And so then yeah. in the, she presumes, like she, no, she does give a speech, and she presumes a particular ending. And I think she's wrong. So, yeah. 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 
that's a that was the brilliance of that book to me that yeah that ending yeah. which I think this movie does too it, is it kind of leaves it open ended for us to think could they is it all just going to play out exactly the way we have just seen it or yeah. is it going to maybe work this time because there's that hope of you know we can acknowledge our flaws in each other and ourselves and approach this in a different way um, or you can try and it might just be the very same thing the very last scene they were running through snow on Montauk Beach so is that real or is that a memory just to say he, he's dragging her through the snow to try and get her away. It's the exact, they're wearing the same clothes. He's dragging her through the snow to try and get her away from the people stealing the memories. And she won't go. She keeps wanting to go to the house. But that didn't have snow the time they went. Anyway, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. That, so that gives me hope, too, that this is like memory recovered, that, they've, that they can kind of learn lessons without knowing they learned them and, and create these new spaces and recover relationships. So but I'm a hope, hopeless romantic so <laughs> well I can talk about the alternate ending I mean it was it I mean it was in the script which written did, did you read the, the screenplay yeah so the screenplay I have because you know I just found it on the interweb um, really just has them you know has the exact ending that is in the film that, that wow that. I um. And I, so I was talking to my friend about this, and he told me about this ending, and mm -hmm. um, and then I went and looked for it, and I thought maybe it was in the DVD, you know, but it was never filmed. It's just in the original screenplay that Coffin wrote, yeah. and uh, I saw it at a couple places on the internet, so I think think that it's real, <laughs> um, but it has an alternate, and I I in some of the interviews I read, um, they refer to the alternate beginning as well, so I think that it's legit, but um. It has, it's this film was originally set, apparently, um, originally thought of as 50 years in the future. Um, and so you actually see, the first person you see is uh, Mary as an old woman come into, um, she goes into Penguin Random House and she has a book that she wants published, a manuscript, and the manuscript is called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, and it's the story of everything. And so then, but I think that's pretty much all we see, and then, um, and then it cuts to 50 years earlier, and kind of plays out the story. But the ending, and I didn't read the whole screenplay, um, right. I didn't have time, but I saw some very similar uh, things in there. Um, but then I went to the end, and the ending is, um, you have Mary as an old woman, um, but then you also have Clementine as an old woman, and um, I think they're at the offices again, and... Clementine is, is talking about what she wants to do, and there's this voiceover, but as she's voiced, as she's talking, um, there's these files, there's a drawer of files of her and Joel perpetually erasing memories of, them, of themselves over and over and over again, and falling in love and erasing and falling in love until the point of when they are, are old. Um, yeah. That's better than doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's, which better, is, that's better than what I would have wrote, written. That's, so. that's the yeah. blessing I went the episode, I think. Wait, what, Kat? I said that's the Black Mirror ending of this movie. Yeah. You know, like the, the kind of bleak, um, 
dystopic kind of vision of technology run amok and, you know, people not learning from their mistakes, which it sounds like there was some rethinking of the concept to me. I mean, not that the ending tells you that, oh, yes, they're going to make it and be happy, but I think it offers some hope it doesn't necessarily definitively say they will keep repeating these exact same mistakes endlessly into the rest of their lives. Yeah. But you see, I don't see it as bleak. I mean, I do see it as bleak, but I don't quite. Um, because, yes, they're repeating the same mistakes, but, like, they're, they, they made it in their own way. <laughs> like, they have spent their lives together in this very, albeit unusual way, and it's not something that they can exactly remember every little bit, but they have spent their lives in love and also out of love, but here they are still together. And and I thought, I mean, that to me, it's, it's, also, it's also quite hopeful in this very dark way, um, or bittersweet way. So that actually reminds me of, um, of all things, of Patton Oswalt, who um, just had his put out a new uh, thing on um, Netflix, and I, I forget what it's called off the top of my head, um, but in, in which he talks in his stand-up about losing his wife and then finding, you know, another partner, and, and they recently were married. And just that idea of, like, you know, he refers to it as, you know, feeling like you get struck by lightning twice. But there is there is kind of that hopefulness, I guess, in a way of, like, if you think of that as like, you know, just a, a, a repetitive thing, I, I mean, getting struck by lightning, you know, 20 or 30 times over the course of a lifetime, you know, by falling in love over and over with the same person, there is a sort of hopefulness of that, even though, yes, they then fall out of love and want to forget each other again. Um, I don't know. I like, I, I definitely see what you're saying, Kelly, there, as far as that goes. I mean, I don't know that it takes away the bleakness of it either at the same time. So there is that ambiguousness. Um, and it's, it's well, and so, you know, uh, in, in our, in our other uh, thing that we do, Kat and I are talking about Battlestar Galactica, of course. So it's, it's that idea of it's all happened before and it'll all happen again, you know, and, and is there, you know, is, is that just human nature that we, we are doomed to repeat the same mistakes. And I, I haven't lived long enough to refute that yet. So. Um. I don't know. I think I would need some some practical information about the relative cost of the memory wipe before I was going <laughs> to believe that. And, 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 you know, a little bit more specific information than the way his question about, you know, is this going to cause any brain damage? Well, actually, it is brain damage. Is. But, yeah. but, you know, nothing comes in a hard night of dreams. Uh, so I think I would need to, to know, have a few more, but I, I'm, I'm a little too practical with this whole thing. You know, I, I think about this whole memory erasure thing and, um, I, you know, I wonder that they wouldn't be overrun with, um, addicts, you know, um, wanting to erase the experience of getting high from their, from their minds. I mean, you know, so don't listen to me because I'll just ruin the entire film for you with my practical, but I, but I wonder about, you know, the practicality of all those erasures. Warfare. Warfare. If it wouldn't be easier to just find a nice Buddhist community to join, you know, and, and get some assistance to sort of putting oneself aside. And I mean, because, you know, that's what those tapes symbolize almost, you know, in, in my mind, those tapes were, you know, like, like Breton was saying, not the fact that they'd encountered each other, but they'd only encountered 
their own version of the other person. And so when they kind of were faced with this, this, their own version of that person, it was ugly, it was terrible. And they wanted to get rid of the, you know, they wanted to, to be without it. They wanted to forget that um, and encounter the person anew, you know, without that filter of themselves, you know, just kind of accept the person for who they are. So I, I just feel like, you know, some, some good meditation, you know, some, some read, Buddhist reading might really help these folks more than all those brain That just sounds like a bad idea, you know, for long-term health. Well, when you get very, very... I made Kelly leave. <laughs> she's gone. <laughs> and she's out. Um, very it's so like about Joel and Clementine's relationship and the line about oh Valentine's is our busy time of year you get the idea that like this is like 95% of their business right is like couples who are in the middle of a bad breakup and especially like this is the boom this is the time of year but this is mostly what they do the only other hints you get of what else there is are the people sitting in the waiting room um, it's a guy with trophies Right, and dog. a woman with all the stuff from her dog. Um, and just like the saddest thing in the movie, straight <laughs> like, You know, it was just the lady with the dog bowl that just says like Buster or whatever. Um, and it, it kind of hints at this idea of people using this as a substitute for actual healing or actual therapeutic responses to grief. Um, and yeah, it's like, it doesn't suggest good things about this whole, you know, procedure. Which is maybe why Howard has such a problem getting funding, you know, from like a major university because nobody will touch it from the uh, ethical and and you know medical implications of the procedure. Well, no one will touch it, and no one will stop it apparently either. Well, yeah. well I mean, you get the sense that not many people know about it. It's kind of word of mouth. I guess they have coupons, but like. <laughs> it's not like, and again, it's before like, I mean, I guess the internet's around, but it's before like social media, like people aren't sharing this on their Facebook walls and stuff. Yeah, fake news. So like, like this is the, I mean, so it's interesting to me that it took to the end to kind of come up with that quite, like, I don't know if any of us watching would say, no, it's better to erase than to live with, the, like, I think most healthy people know the pain is worth kind of working through. But when you're in the midst of pain and loss, it's actually, it doesn't feel that way. Um, or when you're in the midst of addiction or whatever, it doesn't feel that way. And in some ways, this is sort of a terrifying film, right? Just from its sci-fi um, supposal. Just the the idea of a drug or a procedure that that negates selectively memory and that we we get to live in these alternative universes is um it's one of these dehumanizing questions that kind of keep popping up that sci-fi allows us to play with right is you know the the gattic the gattaca question right of what makes us human um and you know in, and again, again, this comes from kind of more spirituality than anything intellectual. Yeah, maybe this is an evolutionary question, but to, to me, I think we have to be pained people, you know, and I think we have to face difficulty. And, and I don't, I wonder if that film came out today, a decade, 12 years later, 13 years later, if we would be, if it could have such a, 
a, a quiet rejection of that worldview, right? I, I think today we're a little more tempted as we disappear kind of into screens. I think we're a little bit more tempted towards dehumanized approaches to the recover of recovery of what we want as happiness or, or healthiness or something, uh, you know, dr drugs to support you know, health, basically, you know, or, or have us to support health. So I, I'm curious about how culture changes, where we'll end up with this, but it won't, it won't be that kind of procedure on a Commodore 64. It's probably going to be something else, right? But, um, yeah, that, that makes me curious and a little scared. Yeah. Well, and, and how much of it is just the, the ability to direct that, right? Because, I mean, it's, you know, Obviously, it's very scary and dehumanizing when, when there's something unnatural or unwanted like Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that that's affecting your memory. And if, if your memories, in a way, are, you know, make up who you are um, with some underlying, you know, basic software that does things like, you know, tell you what tastes good and that sort of thing, like, then then it becomes very scary, but I can also see it being an empowering thing to be able to sort of selectively or incisively, you know, remove memories that are preventing you from maybe moving on in certain ways or like, like there, I, I feel like it's like so many things in this movie, it's not completely one way or the other of, is this therapeutic or is this harmful? Like it can be both. It can be therapeutic at times and maybe very helpful for moving beyond, you know, the death of someone or a pet or, or whatever. But it can also be very harmful when it becomes a crutch or, you know, uh, someone said something about people becoming addicted to this idea and, you know, of, of erasing your memories. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess I, I, I see it as, you know, it can be, it can be both empowering or, detrimental and it it doesn't necessarily have to be one way or the other certainly you would hope that it wouldn't be sort of in the low budget office that we see here and maybe i would wait for a little more funding and research to be put into it but there are early adopters for everything so that's right a mall front see i i'm not i'm not so sure curtis i think i think we're yeah, I, I think that the body imprints. Like, I think I think we would all say, I don't know, PTSD, right? Somebody who has PTSD, we could selectively take out their memories. I think the body would still remember the memories, and we would no longer be able to code them to the things we're feeling. And I only say this because, um, I, I say this for two reasons. One, walking with rape victims, right? And it's just it's just not a physical thing. It's just so holistic, that whole experience. And then secondly, my own experience of loss of my mother last year, and, and I thought I'd you know, be okay, like I was pretty in a pretty good space in a lot of ways, and I was just amazed at how disobedient my own frame was, <laughs> it is through this whole process, um, how I cannot command it. I, I think that if we took out the memories, we would, our body has felt like a path that takes up the, the stories of the travelers. I think our body... Uh, imprints in in much more sophisticated way. So, so I think, I think we would just, I think we'd end up like so dislocated from our memories. I'm upset and I don't know why. 
And so I wonder, so that's, that's my thought. I think, I think we're pretty far down the rabbit hole of the, the supposal here, but you know, granted we had a pill to do this. I think we would wake up the next morning and be like, why am I reaching for this? Or why do I want to phone this number? Well, and it's almost all about evolution. Oh, I'm sorry, Kat. No, no, you go. Well, I was just going to say, if you think about it, you know, from a standpoint of evolution, you know, if, if these terrible memories, you know, or memories of something that's lost, that you know, you, you, that's something that creates a craving in you, a desire in you that you can't have, you can't fill, um, if they serve no purpose at all, you know, we, we would forget, you know, for, you know, these, these terrible moments of trauma or, um, you know, so, so what, what purpose are they serving? You know, um, course once we mechanize evolution right you know like once we become the god of evolution ourselves i I think we do like i think i think evolution is going to get a little confused anyway (laughs) right you know as as we move so i don't know yeah so you're right but i'm not i'm not i think we'll do it anyway like when the technology comes we're we're going to do this massively our culture that we live in will line up for this well, Howard seems to kind of be in the same class of, you know, scientists as like in Jurassic Park, right? Of like, yeah. just because, just because you, you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. Um, yeah. And I tend to agree. Like, I don't see, like, I can see the hopefulness of that alternate ending in the sense that Kelly and Curtis were saying of, well, yes, they fight, they break up, but at least they keep coming back to each other. You keep refalling in love with somebody that is could be a positive experience. But apart from that, I fail to see the any other like redemptive value of this this uh, technique. Um, just in terms of those that human need for memories to learn. Um, you know, the burned hand teaches best is you know the quote that's coming to my mind of. How else do you, how else do you learn? How else do you grow if not from experience? And that includes the bad ones as well as the good ones. Yeah, and I was thinking like, Vincent, you're like you're spot on in like what you're talking about in imprinting and and the body actually reacting when the mind can't remember. I mean, we the movie addresses that. Like Joel wakes up feeling so bad. And he doesn't really know why, and he's feeling, he's really grappling with some emotional turmoil. And the same with um, Clementine. I mean, we don't see her the day after, but we see her a few days after with, with Patrick. And she is, is not herself. She, is, she doesn't know why. She's, oh, Patrick, let's go here. Let's, oh, wait, no, I want to do this. I don't know. And she is, everything that could go wrong in her head is, and she has no idea why. But we, the viewer, do know why, and it's because something that she can't remember. And I think the body would react to something we couldn't remember for for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting thought. I do see it as as a point of healing. Um, but it is it's like a band aid a little bit. It's, it, it it could be helpful, but it's like Curtis said, it can't be a, a crutch because when it is, you're not addressing the underlying issue. Yeah. It's like the phantom limb syndrome of the emotions, right? Yeah. Right. Which I don't experience. So. 
So I, uh, I realized as we were talking, I've written a book about <laughs> periodic memory loss over generations <laughs> where a character has, it comes to the certain point and it goes one way or the other and then she disappears in memory loss and then recovers her space as if nothing has kind of happened and then she keeps going, going for generation after generation. So I've, I've ripped this film off like a number of years ago. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't, I'm, I'm, um, it's amazing how unself-knowing we can be in our, in the way we loop into life. And I also thought, like, what if, what if today, like, someone asked about the social media stuff? Well, what if there's actually all you need is one more supposal? Well, what if actually our digital tracking has created a single DNA strand that exists within the fabric of the internet? And that actual strand can be extracted and used by people, you know, uh, disappeared, right? And and everything connected can be disappeared from that sort of digital DNA strand or uh, adapted or manipulated or reproduced or stolen. That's interesting. Yeah, I think Jasmine is addressing a lot of stuff like this. Um, I, I really feel like, like this movie was a little bit of maybe not ahead of its time, but like certainly a predecessor to shows like Black Mirror um, mm. who are taking this, these sort of questions but, but putting it in like a um, technical, like a social media twist. Um, I've been, I've, I've only seen one episode, <laughs> but the episode I saw was with uh, John Hamm and it was the one where um, you didn't erase someone but you did block them. Like you could, like how we digitally block someone, you could actually block them from your life. Um, sort of realistically and um, digitally in this kind of weird way. Um, cool. Which one? It was a Christmas one. Um, I forget what it was called, but it had John Hamm in it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Black Mirror Christmas special. <laughs> was that what it was? The Christmas special? I don't know. I don't know I if that's it. what it's called, but that's like what it, you know. It might be. Is it a BBC show? I don't know. I think it is, or it's either BBC or ITV, I don't remember, but it's, yeah. you know, British show, apparently it's, you have to have a Christmas special. You got it. You have to. Um, it's not a particularly cheerful Christmas special, but. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but it kind of takes us to the next level of, like, social media and, like, the idea of blocking someone. Like, we can't erase someone, but we do. Like, and actually Facebook does do this. I mean... It's thoughtful that they do this now, but they do um, have this, like, program where if you break up with someone, you can actually, it'll say, do you still want to, like, hear stories about you and so-and-so, or do you want to be reminded from your timeline, you know, because they go back and they say, like, three years ago, you were doing this with this person, and there's a picture of you guys. Um, there's an option for you to, like, I think, take someone out of that equation, and they started doing that, which is kind of kind of eternal sunshine, sunshining someone out of your life in the modern digital age is. I'm sad. I know. All <laughs> <laughs> depressing. I mean, what's what's life if, if you don't split up with your partner and then have to go to the, like, office party without him or her, and everybody asks... Right, and then you have to go to the family Christmas party, and everyone asks, and then you get cards that are all written to like, what's life without that? Right. Digital. A blissful life. 
So. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it depends, but also when you have like maybe kids with your ex and you just can't do that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so you no longer see pictures of your kids anymore. What? What happened to Facebook, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. On that happy note. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so apparently, like, the culture didn't learn the right lessons from this movie. That's what we're... We're still we learning. Move blissfully into the future, yeah. Yeah, well, f Facebook is sci-fi. It just happens to be sci-fi. It's always five minutes too late. Right, like it, 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 it's always adapting so quickly. It's like, oh, apparently putting, you know, Russian ads about the election on Facebook is a bad idea. You know, okay, well, let's not do that for the next, you know, twenty eighteen or something. So, like, they're always like, it's a five minutes, but like the this the bad stuff always creates this kind of new thing. It just moves so quickly. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think it, it'll make better literature later when we're not in the midst of it. So. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, I mean, we've talked about the ending. Uh, you know, unless there's anything else anyone wants to revisit at this point, um, almost a, almost a two-hour discussion. I'd say that's successful. And uh, any any final closing thoughts? Uh, I know we've got a few um, book recommendations and and movie recommendations out of uh, this discussion. Any anything maybe. Uh, folks are interested in going to check out based on this uh, discussion? Well, she's holding Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park, or the Neil Simon's Collected Plays when she's in the store before it disappears. So I guess I want to read Neil Simon's plays. He wrote The Odd Couple, which we've seen various film adaptations of, I'm sure. Um, none of them really kind of intrigue me that much, but Barefoot in the Park, I think, um, which I've never seen, uh, but as a as a play has done pretty well, and so it's certainly New Yorkish in the same kind of way. I'm curious about whether there's a link there. I'm curious about the intertextuality. Like reading the Pope poem, maybe realize that Pope demanded that there was someone to follow him in the way that he wrote that poem, and I'm so it's made me curious about those who have taken that up. I have a slightly well less deep, but like somewhat connected question. In the bookstore, all of the books were turned around. Why? Like, all the books were just, their pages were out, but their spines weren't. And oh, it's, would, it's when the memory it, is disappearing. It, it's actually happening. It, no, but the whole time they were in conversation, right? They're saying the spines aren't even facing yeah. out. They're turned around. No. Well, watch it. Well, like the you know rather than yeah yeah no that's what my wife right? said too and we slowed the video down and it's actually they're they're just whiting them out so yeah so you can actually okay, see so it in the background fine. yeah it's just they're I disappearing they they may be physically turning them around but I don't think so because there's the front and live action shot I right. think they're just it's their way because we looked at it and we're like well that looks like they're just backwards why are they backwards but they weren't like a minute ago so watch the scene like in slow mo like a okay. creeper. Yeah, I'll have yeah. to do that. But I, th I it's interesting because then it, it points out to the, the literature that you can see, the text, the titles and authors who are mentioned make all the more difference because her working in a bookstore, my gosh, there could have been titles and books like that were just glaringly in the shot but kind of weren't. So I think they selectively did choose 
clue to bring our attention to that um, that had written yeah. books or literature or anything like that. Right, the Julius Caesar with Al Pacino. Um, so we had to, to catch it, we had to slow it down to 10%, and it went like whoosh, like this. And Carrie had caught, my wife caught Al Pacino, and I caught Julius Caesar, and together we created the image. We found it online. So that's, I mean, if you want to get all those references, Kelly, you've got some work to do on this film, because it, it, oh, it they do it, down. Yeah, they do it really quickly, yeah. And you have to get the standard. If you get the wide angle, you're not going to see the all the shots. You have to get the old standard DVD or VHS. Oh, yeah, I don't think I was watching. I just rented it, so I don't think I got, yeah. Yeah, I just had the wide angle, yeah. yeah. So I didn't get everything. <laughs> well, on that note, I think um, we can wrap up this session of the uh, <laughs> of the what now? of the Mythgard movie club and uh, yeah we'll see everyone back on January 10th for the last Jedi which I am really excited about already uh, I've got my tickets and we'll be going to see it opening night and yeah hope to see everyone there plus yeah. plus more plus more yeah good stuff thank you everyone thanks thanks for coming guys the Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.